Welcome to the Tigers History Podcast. I'm Nathan Bierma. Sports superstars today aren't just stars, they're brands. They follow a formula of endorsements, autographs, appearances, and savvy PR to capitalize on their celebrity. In the early 20th century, celebrity athlete was still a recent category, and stars like the Giants' Christy Mathewson and the Tigers' Ty Cobb were still coming to grips with the scale of their fame and how to handle it. They had help from a friendly press who promoted them and the sport of baseball in positive terms, although Cobb's complex personality at times threw them a curve. Amber Rosner is author of Inventing Baseball Heroes, Ty Cobb, Christy Mathewson, and the Sporting Press in America. Rosner is a professor at the University of Tennessee's School of Journalism and Electronic Media. For years, she's contributed to scholarship challenging the popular caricature of Ty Cobb as violent and malevolent and called for a closer look at reporters and historians' complicated treatment of the Tiger star. I spoke with Rosner about what Cobb wanted from the press, what they wanted from him, and how historians peel back the layers of the Georgia peach. Amber Rosner, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Welcome. Thanks for joining me. Of course. I'm happy to be with you today. You open your book by reminiscing about playing baseball as a girl growing up in Georgia and pretending that you were Ty Cobb as you swung the bat and ran the bases. What did that name Ty Cobb mean to you growing up in Georgia? Well, the name Cobb operated alongside of uh, Hank Aaron and um, even Del Murphy in the state of Georgia. Um, Of course, this is the mid-80s that I'm talking about, kind of at the height of Del Murphy's fame as a member of the Atlanta Braves. Um, And so, you know, he was just seen as this amazing base hitter, Cobb was, and someone to emulate in terms of his skill and his kind of aggressive style. So the idea that he was this violent racist wasn't part of the narrative in um, Northeast Georgia. And I think that that kind of speaks to it speaks to the cultural amnesia um, surrounding that element of his life in that region um, at that time period in the mid-80s. And we'll get into the complications about his image later on, but was it possible in that area of Georgia to take pride in that name in a way that it wouldn't be possible elsewhere where the popular caricature of Cobb was more dominant? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I think that a lot of locals in that area knew of Cobb as someone who gave back to the community. Um, So he was someone who established a scholarship fund later in his life. He was someone who established a hospital, a healthcare system in a very rural part of Georgia that didn't have access to healthcare. And he also did both of those activities in a way that was inclusive to all minorities. So I think that there was kind of a popular understanding of that in Northeast Georgia that people in other regions of the nation didn't have. Your book traces the history of the careers of Ty Cobb and Christy Mathewson, as well as some of the famous journalists who covered their careers and whose careers sort of paralleled theirs, including Grantland Rice and Ring Lardner. You write about a, I guess we can say, fateful meeting between Cobb and Grantland Rice in Augusta, Georgia in 1904. How did this meeting come about and how did it lay a foundation for what would be a lifelong relationship between the two men? Yeah, this meeting was really precipitated by the public relation efforts of Cobb, who was a young center fielder for the Augusta Tourist, which were a part of the Sally League. 
And so Cobb really had kind of a keen understanding of public relations, which was really an emergent field at the time. And so he was trying to generate his own spin. And to do so, he engaged in a bit of fake news. He created these bogus postcards from fans across the state who all encouraged Rice to check out this great star sensation. And so then ever the savvy publicity man, Cobb told Rice, once Rice came over and covered the game, that um, he had heard a great deal about him too, once Rice said, you know, told Cobb why he was there. And so basically one of the arguments that my book makes is that Cobb understood the value of publicity and public relations and using it to his advantage on the field. And also, but he also became kind of keenly aware of his public image later in life and sought to shift his image um, at that point. But part of his understanding of public relations made him realize at the very outset of his career that in addition to creating hype through these bogus postcards, it was really important for him to establish friendships with the sports writers covering him. And he did so with Rice. And they had a, a long, a lifelong friendship. And he fessed up years later to Rice, right? After he had retired and said, by the way, that was me who sent those postcards. Yes, he certainly did. Um, I think that that was on the trip where they were going. At one point, both of them went to visit um, an ailing shoeless Joe Jackson. And I think it may have been on that trip that he fessed up. And I think at the the moment, um, according to Rice's memoir, he just kind of chuckled about it, you know, so it it didn't create strife between the two of them, um, because I guess he figured that's just Cobb. Um, I think Rice understood Cobb's focus on publicity. Um, He certainly was present when, after kind of some episodes where Cobb had received bad publicity uh, around May of 1912, he was aware of Cobb's efforts to kind of restore his image with the press by hiring ghostwriter John N. Wheeler, um, who was a friend of Rice's. So, I mean, he knew that Cobb was very focused on publicity. So Cobb and Rice have this symbiotic relationship. They need each other. One is a star, one is a writer to promote the star. Um, And this is an example of the relationship between sports journalism and athletes as a whole at the time, as you write. You call this the gee whiz school of sports journalism and say that it was baseball's biggest backscratcher. What do you mean by that? Well, so the gee whiz school of sports journalism, as the earliest sports historians called it, was known for the promotional literary quality of their writing. So G-Riz reporters romanticized baseball and they crafted heroes from star players with these sentimental narratives. And that was kind of a trope that was used in juxtaposition with um, what early sports historians called the all-nuts style of sport journalism. And the all-nuts style, the historical scholarship says, it was an investigative brand that was invented in the aftermath of the 1919 Black Sox scandal. Now, of course, the all-nuts style of sports journalism has remained less in vogue than this G. Wiz brand only gaining favor in select moments, such as the release of Jim Bouton's Ball Four in 1970. And, and then I think you could make the argument that, that the all-nuts style has come to overshadow this G-Wiz mode of sports reporting in this present moment of sports journalism. 
When we're looking at the earliest 20th century, I kept reminding myself that fans in the 1900s, 19-teens are not yet listening to the games on the radio. Some of them have been to the stadium, some of them haven't, so they've never actually seen these players in person. Of course, there's no television. Newspapers were such a vital link between the fans and the players, and therefore one's image in the newspaper was not only dominant, it was almost the exclusive image that a fan had of a player. Newspapers just had so much power over who the athletes were as they presented themselves to fans. Yeah, I mean, I think a handful of sports reporters for these big city dailies and also for national sports magazines, they wielded a great deal of power in shaping an athlete's image. But one thing that I think you'll see if you read my book closely is that savvy star players such as Cobb Um, they did have a degree of power in negotiating their image. Um, And they did so through those relationships with the sports reporters and also through their later collaboration with ghostwriters such as John and Wheeler. And that gets to kind of the other point of contact that fans had with these players. So they came in contact with these daily um, sports pages. They came in contact with um, weekly Um, our monthly sports magazines, and then they sometimes would come into contact with um, books, so popular books. Um, John and Wheeler wrote um, one for Christy Mathewson, and he also wrote one for Ty Cobb. Um, Ty Cobb's was called Busting Them. It was far less popular than the one about Mathewson, which was Pitching in a Pinch. Your book gives a cultural analysis of this phenomenon of the media in the early 20th century as it related to sports stars. And it talks about the cultural types or categories um, or, or myths or roles that the press tried to fit these athletes into or present these athletes as. What were these roles for Matthewson and Cobb, and, and how did the press fit them into those roles? First of all, I think it's really important um, when you think about sports journalism for the of the early 20th century to realize that many of the sports writers weren't college-educated, And then the ones that were college-educated weren't necessarily in journalism schools. Um, The first professional college journalism programs um, had only been created in the early 20th century. And so like Grantland Rice, he went to Vanderbilt, and he got his degree, his major was in literature. So... I think that some of the early sports reporters were very kind of familiar with these literary tropes and it was kind of more common to see um, that brand of reporting in early 20th century newspapers in general. So basically to kind of get at your greater question though, the press, um, they kind of immediately construct Matthewson who's a college-educated Protestant, as this Christian gentleman. And they do so really because of his clean-cut look, his demeanor, his position that he won't play baseball on Sunday, God's Day. Um, And that said, of course, Matthewson wasn't a saint. And that's an interesting point that his wife, after his death in 1925, kept trying to tell the masses that he had some wars. So, for instance, one of the anecdotes that often is shared when people are asserting that that Matthewson wasn't perfect, he once actually uh, got into a brawl with a lemonade vendor. So he assaulted a lemonade vendor who was a young boy at the game um, because he was frustrated with the heckling. The press, though, 
my book contends has a much more difficult time in classifying or defining Cobb. So Cobb was not college educated, but he was very well educated. So he was well read for his time. He was clean cut, but as we all know um, from the existing biographies on Cobb, he had a pretty violent temper. Uh, one that oh, kind of um, came into being after uh, the death of his father at the hands, allegedly, of his mother's shotgun. And after his rookie season, this hazing that he endured from his teammates. So he, he has a violent temper. And initially, sports writers, they placed Cobb into Matthewson's mold as this gentleman athlete. But soon, they were realizing that he was something altogether. So they crafted him as a trickster at times, as an anti-hero, or even as a villain. And they did so because of his demands for higher salaries, his violent tendency supposedly to spike players um, as he slid into third, or uh, to come to blows with fans and fellow players. And they also did so, I contend in my book, because of his role in the first ever player strike in union. So one of the arguments that I make is this idea that sports writers had really been engaged in promoting the game in the early in their earliest kind of iteration. So I'm talking about the 1880s through the early 20th century. And so then in the early 20th century, baseball reaches this place as the national pastime and sports writers really do begin to construct these heroes, but it's really part of, it's part of their role in promoting baseball. And they were really vested in promoting baseball because it impacted their livelihood. Um, if there wasn't a national pastime, then they would suddenly be unemployed, right? So, or having to write about something that they deemed to be boring, like politics, right? Of course, politics were not really boring in the early 20th century, but sports writers had a vested interest in crafting these early baseball stars as heroes and then in crafting them in ways that would appeal or interest readers. And so that's, I think, one of the reasons that they turn to these literary tropes is because they believe it's going to interest the readers. So Cobb becomes harder to pin down as a hero, and so then they begin to craft him as a trickster, as a villain. And part of that is baseball management is frustrated with his demands for how higher salaries and with his role in the player strike and the first ever player union, but so are they because an attack on baseball is an attack on them. So at times, Cobb and Matthewson are presented on the same footing as two baseball gentlemen, and other times the picture of Cobb, as you say, is the foil to Matthewson, the villain to his hero. Did these images go back and forth throughout Cobb's career, or did it start positive and decline toward negative over the trajectory of his career? That's a great question. I think if you are looking at the popular press as a whole, there probably is that general trend that it starts as a gentleman hero. And then after he continues to hold out for higher salaries, uh, the player strike incident related to the brawl with Claude Luker in May of 1912, I think you do start to see a general shift towards him being portrayed as a villain. 
Um, but that said, um, even after 1912, you had children's magazines who were portraying Cobb as a Christian gentleman. And that was always intriguing to me, like how these children's ma- magazines, like uh, Youth's Companion, were portraying Cobb as this kind of gentleman hero that we should all emulate. And how they handled kind of the tension in terms of the, the flaws in, in Cobb's character was just to ignore them altogether. So um, when you did see those heroic portraits of Cobb, um, they tended to focus on his determination, the fact that he was a student of the game, kind of engaging in the science of baseball, uh, and then that he and later and Matthewson too, they were kind of portrayed as the Methuselahs of baseball because they had been students of the game for so long. So the press and the sports stars had a close relationship, and at times their roles even converged to the point where Cobb and Matthewson and others were asked to guest write reports and columns from the World Series or general interest features about baseball. When this happened, what did the players have to do? What did they not have to do? And what was in it for them? They didn't have to do much of anything. Other, at points, they had to kind of just give general comments about their perspective on a given game. Uh, But by and large, this is what we would call easy money. So they were getting sums as as great as $500 for uh, lending their names to these um, ghosted guest columns. The sports reporters, too, um, didn't have a lot to lose. They were getting extra money for working in in these roles, Uh, but it was also, they were being allowed to kind of engage in creative fiction in a way that they couldn't with just a traditional gamer piece. Um, And then the kind of greatest victor in this scheme were the newspaper publishers because they syndicated these news articles and they ran across the country. So they made tons of money off of this scheme. So the only individuals who were frustrated with the system were certain sports reporters. So some people would argue it was sports reporters who were sour over the fact that they didn't have access to making extra money in these ways. But the argument of these sports reporters is that it was hurting the credibility of their craft. And then the other group of individuals who were frustrated with these kinds of accounts, the the top leadership of baseball. And for them, they saw it as two things. One, a distraction for players during these types of pieces typically would run during the World Series. So they weren't necessarily a regular feature of day-to-day game coverage. So they saw it as kind of distraction for players around the World Series. And they also saw it as something that could anger individual players with another player. And then finally, I think they were frustrated because star players were suddenly making a ton of money in these schemes. And so they didn't have to be as reliant upon their salary in baseball. So 
the control that the leadership of Major League Baseball had was kind of waning. And from Cobb and Matthewson's perspective, they had limited bargaining power, almost none. They maybe had a little more because they were stars over their salaries with the reserve clause restricting the leverage they had. So they had to find ways through commercial endorsements, through things like getting paid to ghostwrite these columns. They had to find other ways to capitalize on their stardom. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's interesting because... I think that to modernize, we, we sometimes forget that these individual players were making re- really meager salaries. The star players in the teens were making um, anywhere from twelve to $15,000, but that was a small fraction of what these major league clubs were making off of them and, and their images and their likenesses. So you can't really blame those players for wanting to capitalize on their own image Um, in the same way that you really can't blame the NCAA athlete for wanting to make money off of their own likeness because colleges do and ESPN does and ABC does and CBS does. So you can't blame them for also wanting to make some money off of their own image. So there's a bizarre interlude to the careers of Cobb and Mathewson. It was after Mathewson retired. Cobb said he was retiring in 1918, but he would come back. Uh, but they served together in World War I in a chemical weapons unit, and they suffered a bizarre mishap with their gas masks. It would almost be comical if it weren't so dangerous. What, what happened, and how serious was it? Yeah, it was quite serious, actually. And both Cobb, so both Cobb and Mathewson, they were a group of several players to be selected for this chemical warfare unit. And the government had recruited them as, quote-unquote, young athletes with extraordinary capabilities to lead others. And you're right, they were both exposed to mustard gas during this training exercise. And as Cobb later wrote in one of his early memoirs, Matthewson got a good dose of the stuff. And so what ultimately happens for Matthewson is it leads to the demise of his health. So first, he develops chronic bronchitis um, in the immediate aftermath of being exposed to the mustard gas. And then he develops tuberculosis, which cuts short his life. So he dies in 1925 um, at a relatively young age because of his encounter with this gas during World War I. So the Black Sox scandal of 1919, or it really came about in 1920, was really a turning point in baseball history, as you mentioned, and it led the press to look for a new star, and the popular narrative is that Babe Ruth came along and captured the public imagination, which he did, but the press had a curious relationship with him, at least at first. They were not willing to wholeheartedly embrace him as baseball's savior at first. Why not? Yeah, so of course the sports writers already knew Ruth because of his role as a pitcher in Boston. Um, but many of the sports writers of the day, they resented Ruth because of his kind of garish, brassy manner. So he was rowdy, he was uncouth, and he was just what they had spent years trying to show that the American public that baseball stars and baseball wasn't. So he was the opposite of this wholesome game that they were trying to promote. So instead, they wanted a clean star like Matthewson to help promote the sport and their own livelihood. And Ruth was the opposite. Uh, Later, I think that they came to resent him for his establishment of a media gatekeeper and sports promoter Christy Walsh. 
So basically, sports reporters at the time, they were making um, their living by trying to get the quote-unquote inside scoop about the private lives of the famous. And the establishment of public relations gatekeepers like Walsh, that eliminated those opportunities. And so they were very resentful of that change to the craft. So I'm curious how you see these approaches playing out today. What what echoes of gee whiz journalism and aw nuts journalism do you see? It's such a different era in so many ways with television and the internet uh, giving uh, relatively unmediated access to athletes and their images. Athletes can communicate with fans directly with social media. How do you see these journalism types playing out today and is the press still in the business of crafting hero types, hero images for fans the same way they were or in a similar way they were in the early 20th century? So I think that's a really great question. So first of all, I would make the argument that journalists across content areas began to practice kind of a more adversarial mode of reporting beginning in the 1970s. And so that's been the general trend across content areas. That said, um, since that time, athletes have enjoyed moments of this kind of resurgence of a GWIS mode of reporting. Uh, So, for instance, in the aftermath of the 1994-1995 baseball strike, what you saw was the fact that sports writers did craft these kind of heroic narratives surrounding Cal Ripken Jr. and the home run race between Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. And in that moment we all know that they kind of ignored a lot of prominent sports reporters kind of ignored the rampant steroid abuse. And in part, I would make the argument that they did so that they ignored the steroid scandal and kind of focused in on these feel good narratives because they were trying to revive the public interest in baseball. Um, So of course, baseball status as the national pastime had really been eroding since the 1950s in the South, because that's kind of the role that college football played in the South. Uh, But then really since the 60s, all throughout the country, you had the NFL, you had other kind of sports that were attracting the attention of the public. And so I would make the argument that sports reporters at this point, whether they kind of realized it or not, were kind of working to restore the public interest in the sport, once again, to which their livelihood kind of was implicated in. Now, um, you were asking about kind of this moment of the digital landscape and social media. And I think that in the age of social media, athletes they're no longer forced to rely upon sports reporters for promotion and they can circumvent the sporting press and talk directly to the American people through these social media channels. And so what we've seen is a heightened sense of adversarial reporting in reaction to this trend. So sports journalists have now begun to embrace this on that school of reporting more than ever. You write about how complex Cobb's image was during his career and during his lifetime. It's arguably gotten more complex since his death. Around the time of his death, his authorized ghostwriter Al Stump wrote books and articles that were later exposed to be largely fabricated, and they had promoted a caricature of Cobb as racist and violent and sort of a sociopath. 
And that was contested immediately by the sporting news, by people who came to his defense, and it's been contested throughout history since then. Although Stump's image has has had a real popular hold, and I know you've written about this, about uh, criticism of Stump, and there's been a lot of uh, revisionist or maybe recovering the original image of Cobb. More recently, the Charles Learson biography at the popular level has challenged these misapprehensions. I'm curious about how you see the role of the historian in all this. Can the historian really peel back all the layers and get back to a pure image of the real Cobb? Or is the historian's role to help us navigate all these different layers and competing images that have accumulated over the years? I think that's a great question, too. I I think that it's no more possible today for us to recover the real Cobb than it was in his own time period. Um, Instead, I think it's the historian's job to offer as complete of an understanding as we can of Cobb and his colleagues in light of all of the historical evidence available. So diaries, memoirs, letters, interviews, and popular press accounts. Now, we can't take those popular press accounts with at face value, um, as my work contends. We have to read those accounts by reading the relationships between sports reporters and um, the popular icons. And, and we have to think about how both were complicit in um, negotiating um, particular images. And yeah, I, I think that there's been a lot of interesting work since 2008 with Benjamin Rader's very thoughtful essay um, that asked the general public to reconsider Cobb's images of violent racist psychopaths in light of the Southern culture of honor um, and in light of the context of the region in which he was born and grew up and the time in which he was born and grew up. I certainly draw upon Raider's work in my examination of the public memory of Cobb, and I know Learson does as well. And you're exactly right. In, In a piece that I wrote in 2010, I noted that as soon as Stump's initial account is published, there is a series that runs in the sporting news over a period of six months. And it's all former players, so the individuals who played with Cobb, coming to the defense of Cobb and saying, hey, he is not what Stump portrayed him to be. Instead, he is a man who... Um, never spiked another player. He played hard and he was determined, but he played clean ball. And um, he's also a man who gave back to the community of players in baseball by establishing funds for ill, downtrodden former colleagues and also by establishing um, a healthcare system in his hometown, by establishing a college scholarship fund. And so there was kind of there was kind of this wave of wave of memory protectors, right, coming to the defense of Cobb in that moment. And what we've seen since then is in by 1994, when Stump writes his biography, and you in 1995 see the film Cobb based upon that book, in which Tommy Lee Jones makes an amazing performance as Cobb, Basically, you see the echo effect of Stump's fabrications, right? And 
by that point in time, by that juncture, there are just less of those memory protectors to come to the defense of Cobb. And so you don't have as many voices saying, hey, this isn't quite right. And so really that image of Stump has overshadowed the work of so many since the 1960s. Um, And so I think it's really important to, like I said, I think it's important that historians offer um, the most holistic understanding of a person, an individual, an industry as they can. And doing so, you know, requires reading sources in nuanced ways. So sorry if this is asking the same question all over again, but as a historian, do you feel you can say the real Cobb was X and Y and give some adjectives, or are you trading or dealing in just a series of created images by the media, beginning with those who were alongside him during his career? I guess the argument that I'm making is that understanding the real Cobb was complex in his own time because you had this notion, this emerging split between the personal private persona and the public persona. So I think that, you know, the only individuals who knew the real cop were his family and the sports writers closest to him. Even then, though, I think that Cobb was projecting certain images at certain time periods. And so I think it is kind of impossible for a historian to say, oh, this is actually the real, real Cobb. Just as I think it was impossible for a sports writer at that time to say this was the real, real Cobb. Instead, I think that what we're forced to do as historians um, is to read all of those images of Cobb, the ones that he constructed himself, the ones of the sports reporters, the voices of his fellow players, the voices of his family, and to read all of those in relation to one another and also to kind of read it in light of the context of his time. So you worked as a sports writer yourself before turning to scholarship, not only with sports and culture, but the media and the presidency. It seems to me, you tell me, that the place for women in the locker room and women in sports media uh, has gotten a lot better over, the, say, a generation ago when there was rampant sexism and much worse happening in locker rooms. I'm wondering how much things have improved when it comes to uh, female historians and sports historians. Uh, What have you experienced? How do you evaluate the landscape uh, of what it's like to be a woman working as a sports historian? Well, so first of all, as someone who is a former um, sports reporter that's a woman, I will say that, you know, my generation owes so much to the first generation of sports writers, uh, female sports writers, individuals like Melissa Lutke, who, you know, engaged in lawsuits to gain access to locker rooms um, and so that they could do their job. That said, you know, even in the early 2000s when I was working as a sports reporter, women still encountered some sometimes downright harassment and sometimes this kind of undercurrent that we weren't supposed to be there. <laughs> And, you know, I think that that's what women working in the area of sports history sometimes still feel, too. I know that there, there is a trend of 
kind of ignoring the work of women in the area of sports history and in the area of baseball history in particular. So, for instance, Dorothy Seymour, um, she was the spouse of Harold Seymour, who wrote the seminal early histories of baseball. And she collaborated with her husband, um, but was not given the credit. um, And she didn't receive that credit until around 2012. And so, you know, there, there kind of has been a trend of devaluing the work of women in this area. And, um, you know, I, I think that we encounter it less so now. Um, I think that more and more our scholarship is taken, taken seriously by other individuals in the academy. That said, I think that um, sometimes it's not taken as seriously by popular historians, popular writers for the pop press. Um, and then the general public. So I'll just give you an anecdote. Um, so after I published the book in 2014, I did a series of book tours. And so I was asked to give a talk to a vintage baseball, to the crowd at a vintage baseball team. And my husband um, wanted to tag along. And so, of course, I said yes, mainly with the idea that he would help me sell books afterwards. Um, and handle all the actual transaction and that I could converse with the general public. And I, I actually have had a couple of, of fans in those moments come up to me and say, now, there, there's no way that you really wrote a book about baseball. Did this guy help you? So I, I still think that there's that sentiment out there with the general public, and I think it's unfortunate. And I think, but I think it's not just in the realm of sport. I think that you see it in other areas um, of our culture as well. Well, Amber Rosner, this is such a fascinating era, this early 20th century era, both in sports history and the history of the press and American culture as a whole. This is an essential contribution. Thanks for the book. Thanks for your time today. I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. I was happy to, and I look forward to chatting again soon. Amber Rosner is author of Inventing Baseball Heroes, Ty Cobb, Christy Mathewson, and the Sporting Press in America. Rosner teaches at the University of Tennessee School of Journalism and Electronic Media, where this year she received the American Journalism Historians Association's Award for Excellence in Teaching. Rosner is currently at work on a book on the presidency of Jimmy Carter, focusing on Carter's relationship with the press, and is co-editing a book on the pioneering civil rights crusader Ida Bell Wells. Prior to her academic career, Rosner was a sports writer for the Gainesville Times, where she earned a Georgia Associated Press Award. You've been listening to the Tigers History Podcast. I'm Nathan Bierma. The Tigers History Podcast is not affiliated with the Detroit Tigers or Major League Baseball. The Tigers History Podcast is now on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review to help us find new listeners. You can also subscribe through Google Play and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Tigers History. Join us next time for the Tigers History Podcast.